welcome to the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. A really quick intro before I welcome Kenny Zhao to the show. The reason why it's so quick is because my cats are in the studio and I get the sense they're going to start making noise any second now. So they've been really, they've been really feisty and frisky the last couple of weeks. Ever since, actually the last week, ever since I got back from vacation, they've been kind of insane. Um, so yeah, this week I welcome... Kenny Zhao to the show. Kenny's a musician, singer, DJ, producer. I met him a couple months ago at a party and we just started talking about music and my podcast. And yeah, I'm really freaking stoked you made it to the show. It's always cool just to talk to other musicians and artists. And this the podcast actually is going to have a music focus over the next few weeks because I do interview uh, Josh Onstott next week from Other Lives, which is one of my favorite bands. And then I interview Ian uh, Ian Ketterer of the band Among Authors, which uh, they're based in uh, Seattle, and they're actually going to be on a national tour over the next like couple months. So I'm going to be talking to him as well. So yeah, it's really cool to be talking to some other musicians. Oh, by the way, uh, Kenny also he's got a show coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about it, and you're going to be hearing some of his music on my show. But he has a show coming up June 6th at the Chewing Foil. And he's performing. Uh, he's actually curating and producing the whole event. There's going to be artists, uh, artwork, painters, DJs, musicians, other bands. So definitely, if you've got nothing going on, June 6th in L.A., The Chewing Foil, check out Zhao. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a great night of music. And as I was saying, yeah, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral, there's sort of two things going on with the show. First of all, the downward, the, the, the downward facing spiritual spiral is what happens when a culture is just staring at their phone all day. Uh, these, the cell phones, Instagram has such a strong magnetic pull that if you look around, obviously you see people staring at their phones all day. So what's going on? You know, people aren't having conversations. They're not looking around. They're, they're walking into telephone poles because they're staring at their phones. If you go out to dinner, people are looking at their phones instead of actually talking to one another. The spiritual spiral is what happens when Instagram and our cell phones become such a priority. And it's a problem. It's a huge problem because obviously what's happening is people are spending more of their lives in the artificial world than the real world. So I want to talk about that. I think I'm trying to bring more awareness to it and how negative these these social media platforms can be on our lives. And the other aspect of the podcast, we don't have conversations anymore. So I want to bring the art of conversation back into our lives and talk to cool, interesting uh, artists and yoga teachers, musicians, DJs, just people I think uh, you should be aware of. Because, you know, we we forget that, you know, the way that we get to know people nowadays, it feels like, is just if you like something on Instagram, then you think you know them. But, they're, you know, we're human beings. There's so much more depth and dimension to to us than than Instagram. So I really want to introduce you to cool and interesting people that I think uh, have a voice and have a story to tell. So that's really sort of the, the, the two parts to the show, bringing more awareness to how fucked up Instagram is and bringing more awareness to cool, interesting people into your life. So this week, I welcome Kenny Zhao to the show. Really quickly, just um, DJing wise, this summer, I'm going to be over at Above 60 in Beverly Hills, the hotel. We're going to be DJing there poolside on Saturdays. My first gig there is June 22nd. 
it's from one to five o'clock. So it's basically just a, it's a pool party. So great music, great food, pool, uh, dancing. So come by. I'm at the, uh, I'm at 77 Lounge on the 14th and the 28th. Uh, that's uh, Friday night, 9 p.m. to like 2 in the morning. And I did release a new song on Spotify and iTunes this last week called Lost at Night. So check it out for sure. I would love to hear what you think about the song. And that's it. So for now, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral, Kenny Zhao, joins me on the show. Hope you enjoy the conversation. the other cat they're so soft (laughs) yeah they're they're well taken care of they're they're very spoiled (laughs) but they're not so spoiled that they're overweight so that's i mean which is great because that's kind of where my cats are at right now (laughs) well i i i take them with me when i go to the gym so Uh, (laughs) i I force them on the treadmill no it's true i I don't want i don't want fat cats i'm gonna have to kick them out of course nelly's gonna start scratching so yeah i definitely want to play one of your songs so we can do that on the show the one that I really like a lot, it seems like it is the one that's most played on Spotify. There it is, Melt Away. Mm-hmm. And then I also saw you, because I follow you now, that you like released something new, a remix? Yeah, I've been working with these African producers, um, and they uh, they helped me get a pretty awesome collab with this DJ, Black Coffee. Okay. And then I was like, why don't we do something together and like make a collaborative thing? And so they remixed a track that I put out last year. Okay. Um, yeah, and then I'm also, I think Eric's going to be putting out a track with me next week. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome to the show. Um, can, how do I pronounce your last name? Is it Zhao? Yeah, Zhao. Kenny Zhao. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I, you know, I'm going to change it up a little bit this week for the show. And I'm actually just going to start the show by playing one of your songs. Cool. Is that yeah, cool? Yeah, that works. Yeah. It's called Melt Away. It's, it's the most downloaded song of yours on, on uh, Spotify, but mm-hmm. I, I really, I dig it a lot. So it's called, when did this song come out? This song came out last, I want to say, ooh, like April? Okay. Yeah, I think it was around April. So about a, two months ago, or a month ago, or, or year last ago. year, a year mm-hmm. ago. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. sorry. Yeah, no, it's only yeah, it's, April before last. So, yeah, it's called Melt Away. Take hold of my hand We'll fly away 
really cool it's it's um it's funny i was i obviously was looking at your website and you said ever since i was young i spent most of my time listening and asking why why do certain tones and timbers soothe us while others push us away why does the music of previous eras cause one reaction for those who grew up with it and a different reaction in us why does our pop music today bear such a strong resemblance to sirens and alarms i want to get to the sirens and alarms later you know, how are you aware enough to realize that certain tones can actually create certain feelings? It's always been a part of how I studied music. When I, I started playing piano when I was five. Okay. Um, and it was like largely classical training. So I would do competitions. And this is back in when I used to, I grew up in Georgia. Okay. And, um, and so at that point, I, I understood that music could make me feel certain things um and i drew i was drawn to like romantic music like often most classical like minded people that's like your first love is romantic music yeah sure chopin and beethoven stuff like that and then i went to school for composition so i think that's always been kind of the lens through which i've looked at music um when I first got into college, I was a psychology major because practically speaking, it sounded like it made more sense than being a musician. Sure. So, and I think that that speaks to the curiosity I had towards like what it is that's going on behind the scenes. And so when I studied composition, I ended up transferring over to the music school. Um, it was very much based in music theory and, um, and then beyond that, like 20th century music and then kind of combining those things of... Like, I feel like music theory is built off of this idea of, like, what makes sounds that sound good. Right. Sounds that sound dissonant. Um, and how do you evoke emotions with certain sounds or play with expectations? And so I always kind of interpreted that as, like, we can make you feel a certain way with certain tones, with certain phrases. Um, you can emulate a voice with a melody or, yeah, you know, different things like that. And And all this time I was discovering... Like a friend of mine showed me classic rock for the first time when I was in high school and I got really into Jimi Hendrix. Sure. Initially, I really wanted to be like a guitarist. Yeah. (laughs) Because it seemed to me like they were so liberated on stage and they could just like 
communicate the feelings that they had, you know, through their instrument. I think coming from a classical background, you get really constrained by like, oh, I, I can play this one piece and there's limit, there's like ways that I can play that piece, but there isn't a ton of wiggle room for like, oh, let me just like try this other thing here. You yeah. Know, it's like, it's very much this 20 page kind of epic tale that you have to tell more or less the same way each time. You know, you bring up Jimi Hendrix and I think about, um, Led Zeppelin, and I even think about some of those old videos. There was just such a there was there, there was a combination of mysteriousness, vulnerability, you know, sex, raw. Because n- not everybody was there. There wasn't YouTube, and there wasn't cameras everywhere. There was mm-hmm. this mystery to music and sexuality to music and rawness and freedom to it all. Mm-hmm. And I think there is that when you start to sort of connect to music for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the age of, and, and nowadays, you know, everybody's got a phone with them everywhere they go and every concert's like can be videotaped and right. there is the mystery is sort of gone. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I want you to talk, talk a little bit about Jimi Hendrix and sort of those early years when you were sort of, cause I just want to know your experience when you were getting into music at first and mm-hmm. what, what, what about it made you, excited or or and were your parents supportive and and, yeah. and and what instruments were sort of around the house just tell me about about those sure. that, that time of day or time of year yeah well so i started playing piano for a long ass time and i um I, I continued that into college um but i stayed you just taught yourself um no we had a we had teachers and um i i got, I got trained by progressively more advanced teachers. but did your did your parents they saw that you were interested like what gave them yeah uh, my know. mom says that uh that i used to run to pianos okay like before i was five and oh, i feel like trying to play on them and stuff that's cool so she was like clearly he wants to play piano and yeah. then um and i always i always ask her because i like i do want to know like was this something that i always wanted to do and she said at one point there was a part where there was a piece of history where i was like pretty frustrated with uh with playing at one point and i just like didn't want to play anymore and she she tells me that she gave me an ultimatum at that point and was like you know if you really don't want to do it give it like two weeks like you don't have to go to class right and then you know see if you still want to do it and it turns out i i ended up getting back into it after that um it's funny you and i have a similarity because we had a piano in the house and my mom she was supportive but there was also sort of piano to me that wasn't like as cool or sexy as guitar or like yeah. drums. And so, and so I went away from it mm-hmm. and I stopped and I got to, I went, but then after, like in college, I went back to it on my own mm-hmm. and I'm, I just, I'm so happy we had a piano in the house yeah. because, um, it was my first experience with music and, and sort of, I just, I remember sitting down and I never really had lessons. I just started banging the piano and she knew that I, obviously was really into music yeah um and it's cool that she that your mom i I like how she sort of gave you an ultimatum yeah um but you ended up finding your way back to it anyway right and i i do think that it was maybe you could you could say it's kind of a team effort because part of why i continued playing piano was because i was good enough that it would be a good thing for my resume getting into college Hmm. so if i ever didn't need if i ever didn't feel like practicing there was this additional motivation of like i mean the first like 18 years of my life um from middle school to well i guess that's not 18 years but like you know the middle school to high school chunk was like completely 
dedicated to getting into college for right. my parents. It was sure. like, uh, from sixth, seventh grade, I was doing SAT prep, um, took my first PSAT. Like, I mean, most people do in middle school, but I took the SAT like a few times to get the best scores because they combine right. the different sections. And, um, well, I do want to say you're Asian American. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've, was it just like a, a strong cultural, um, influence or were your parents strict in the sense of you have to go to college, but on the side, they were allowing you to play music also, or they wanted you to be practical or so what was that sort of dynamic like? It's yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a, you know, it's a like nesting doll of, of stories because yeah. my parents grew up in China during the cultural revolution. So like they didn't, they didn't ever went to high school. Yeah. Like my, my parents both were in middle school when Mao took over and he shut down all the schools and sent everybody to factories. Wow. So my mom was working in a bicycle factory for like her teen years, a lot of the time. And they got into college, like within like the first two, three years of them reopening after Mao was replaced. And so to them, college was like the biggest change in their life. It was Mm. the reason that I exist. Like they couldn't have come to America if they didn't go to college. They couldn't have, they couldn't have supported like the family that we have now if they yeah. hadn't come to the States and they didn't come to the States. Uh, they wouldn't have come to the States if they hadn't gotten a degree in international trade. And that degree was given to them. Um, you couldn't choose what your major was at the time. You, the government would just tell you, you were going to be you know, this. Wow. So the two of them just happened to meet in college because they got assigned to be international trade focused people and then after since there were no schools the moment they graduated they became professors to teach the next you know class wow and uh and my dad got some sort of an offer to learn from canada because they were opening their borders a little bit so he got a grad uh he got a master's degree at the like dalhousie university or something in nova scotia um and then that was when they kind of decided to converge in the states and and like seek out new opportunities yeah especially with like international trade as a as a major it's a pretty pretty sweet deal definitely (laughs) yeah so i mean they obviously saw the value in going to college yeah and and, um it's the when when so many things are outside of your control i imagine that like when there's this path that you can see that's like you will be successful or you will have certain things secured for you it's like a no-brainer to like encourage your kid to do that that being said, I think um, their relationship to me and my brother has evolved so much over the years. It began as this very much like, we are your parents, we have a certain relationship to you, like, we have rules that you have to follow, and we are authority, like, there isn't much, like, personal space as far as, like, you know, opening up to each other, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and over the years, it's been really awesome to see how much they've accepted I mean, they weren't like super against me being a musician, but early on, like I had to convince them. And I've, I think I, I've been pretty good at like understanding where they're coming from and speaking their language sure. in that regard. So I've been able to sort of assuage their concerns every step of the way, but it wasn't without like an argument every three to six months about what I was doing, like why I needed to make this so hard for myself. Right. And, like, well, what did what in their world? What did they want you to be doing? If it wasn't, I mean, did they have sort of a plan for you? And they just wanted me to have a secure financial sure uh, situation. Um, they wanted me to. I think at one point, my mom wanted me to be a lawyer. That yeah. was like the big one. 
but I never like took any step in that direction besides like one time when I was in elementary school and I said it'd be cool to be a lawyer and she like has brought that moment up <laughs> for years yeah. since. Yeah. I think what it was was I was so open to them about what my experience was in college. I told them about how I would drink and black out and stuff. Right. And they had never had that experience in China in college. Like they couldn't even hold hands in college. Yeah. Um, so I tried to be as open as possible with them and I think that did that helped a lot in sort of explaining to them that this is a world that they don't really understand and that I have to make my choices in that world. Right. Um, especially when I moved out here, it was like they would try to help me in the capacity of an authority figure. But the more I think that's just a parent thing. Like, I don't know for sure, but <laughs> no, it is. It's, you know, they, I think they they want to control as much as they can, but also and it's all out of. Um, you know, love and care, right? And fear, and, and not wanting, and, and music, and being an artist. That you know, back I think when they grew up and my parents grew up, had this sort of mystery and and um, renegade attitude right. towards it. Um, and you know, it doesn't. It's not about like having to be like Kurt Cobain becoming a heroin addict. And, yeah, and it doesn't have to be that. It can right. still be. You know, there can still be beauty to it all. But I think to to your parents and my parents, it's still looked at as being uh, unpredictable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And I think the best, the best like sort of argument for the choices that I've made that my brother has made is just the fact that we are still a very tight unit as a family. Yeah. And I think they do value that more than, you know, success. Sure. I've been making a lot of, um, I've been thinking a lot about that though. Um, just like this idea that when you have a kid, like it's not like some sort of evolution. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like your kid is going to be a, necessarily a better version that like than you. It's just, they're another person. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like why would they be, obviously they could learn from your lessons, but if they want to be a completely different person, like with different, you know, values and different priorities, it's like it's just so many things out of your control. Yeah, I think that's just really I mean I'm because I am I'm very different from my parents, but I but I know they it's not that they want me to be like them, but they think, you know, that's what they know yeah. and that's what they're comfortable with and, they, right. and if it worked for them, they would assume it would work for their son. Mm-hmm. Um but we all can manage and navigate our lives in our own sort of unique way and take what we want from our parents. And of course I've taken things from my mom and dad and um, your parents probably were rigid about some specific things. Yeah. I think, Um, I think the discipline has been helpful to me. I would have thought that it would have kicked in earlier. Yeah. (laughs) Cause I spent a decent amount of time. I moved here like six years ago and I knew I wanted to make music, but I think there's just so many different things that get in the way of that. That don't even have to do with like your habits and have more to do with like your internal mental struggle of like, what is, what is worth spending time on? Right. And you end up wasting a lot of time just trying to figure out what that is. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like that discipline has since kicked in. Like I'm starting to value the time I put into the things I care about and how that feels different from, you know, not having control over my time. Right. Like just really taking, taking those, those, those moments seriously. Yeah.
I want to talk about the song. Oh, sure. <laughs> That's right. No, but I, I mean, this is all cool. Um, I mean, did you, did you sing it? Yes. And you played all the instrumentation. Yeah. And you produced it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, when, when did it go from, I mean, I think everybody, it, it starts as a hobby mm-hmm. and then it sort of becomes more of a passion and then it gets to the point where, oh, I want to do this all the time and make money from it and get mm-hmm. people to hear my music. I mean, tell me about that process for you where mm-hmm. you felt like, gosh, this is really something that I, and I feel like that song, I mean, that that sort of, to me, listening to a lot of your music sort of embodies your style. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 you did all the, the drum programming, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. No, you did everything, and I, it, it's funny. It, it sounds effortless when you listen to it, but there's so much work yeah. and energy that goes into making a song and producing it and making it sound good. Yeah. And people just take it. The listeners who aren't musicians, I guess, take it for granted. Uh, totally. Same same thing with like a movie. You know, I remember reading this story about Quentin Tarantino about like the Inglorious Bastards, and it was. It was like a four or five year process. Wow. And it was a two and a half hour movie. Right. And it's just, there's so much thought and time and energy that goes into um, making a song or writing a song and producing it. So before we go back to the process of, you know, where you decide to take it seriously, just tell me about that song. How how long did it take? And what's your creative process like? Sure. Um, So when I first started the song, it was actually like a year, might've been a year and change because I I did some writing sessions with a guy named Ollie um, in New York. We had really good chemistry in the okay. studio, and he would be kind of like, usually I'm the producer of everything, and so like more and more over the years, I've really started to appreciate being in a room with somebody else who can control the, you know, the madness while I just sure. sort of get the ideas out. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of one of those situations where um, I played some chords, he played some chords, uh, he was doing some crazy sequencing, and I was able to just focus on the lyrics and I ended up writing that song in like, like a few hours, wow. which was really nice. Um, and I think it's because you sort of get into this groove of like, yes, anding where like, instead of you being by yourself and being like, oh, does that word sound right? You right. just like have to go with it because the, the song is moving forward at such a pace. Yeah. I've always felt like my classical training has given me a lot of like rules about how Mm. to resolve chords and things like that so i I end up if i spend enough time with a song i'll cut out like most of the dissonance and so he had these crazy chord progressions and i found it particularly interesting to find ways to create a melody that would feel comfortable right in that context and what's funny about that is that um that version of the song is not anything like that uh, like the melt away that came out right because um, he got really busy. I think he got some sort of like a licensing contract and he started putting out a lot of tracks under that. And so he was kind of sitting on this track and I asked him to just send me the vocals. Right. And uh, and I just made a completely different chord progression under the vocals that I had recorded with wow. him. Wow, interesting. Yeah, and that was something that I really, in, that I've always enjoyed doing. Right. Um, just like, there's this essay I wrote, ba- or that I read back in college um, that this guy Adorno wrote. He's a huge like music critic from like the twenties, and he talks about the onset of pop music, like right as it was becoming like more than just jazz standards, but actually like recordings and stuff. Right. 
and he 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 was he pretty much called it because he was talking about like everything's gonna become modular you'll be able to just like slot in one piece of a song into another and they right. all just have these structural like predictable elements to them what's interesting listening to you i've worked with a producer who went to music school i never went to music school and this drummer that i used to work with he went to music school i totally support people that go to music school but i did notice something i feel as though the schooling can sometimes get in the way because they get so analytical about like does this chord work with this chord right and and it it and it almost gets mathematical. Mm-hmm. And there is something mathematical about music. I get that mm-hmm. uh, in terms of measure and BPMs and, and you know, even the structure of a verse and a chorus and maybe make the second chorus come in quicker. Or make I, I often make the second verse half as long as the first verse because mm-hmm. I want to get to the chorus quicker. And right. I mean, I get that. But I also found that it can sometimes be a crutch. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, um... what, what do you thinking when i first uh came to the came to la i um was working on an ep to kind of like announce that i was finally doing this thing for real right and i spent a lot of time just like by myself trying to figure out what it is the sound that i want i was listening to a lot of different artists and i think that classical side was definitely kicking in a lot as far as like i feel like i made something that was very thick arrangement wise right um but even at that point i realized um that there was this kind of like these restrictions that i was putting on myself yeah and it's kind of been this guiding principle for me to push myself in the weirdest directions possible knowing that i'm going to correct i'm going to err on the side of like things that are pleasing to the ear yeah so it's almost like i should just trust that I'm going to have an ear for those things and then basically let myself put out the least uh, consonant thing. <laughs> right. And that hasn't really worked all that well. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. When, I, when I listen to like Melt Away, for example, it's extremely pleasant, you know? And yes. it reminds me of like uh, Beach Boys at times, like some uh-huh. of the, the, vo- the vocals do and sometimes the, the arrangement of the chords. The chords are a little bit, you know, like... They're they're not dissonant. They're just like chill and groovy, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's been kind of like uh, rattling around in my head every single time. It's like I gotta just I gotta let the first idea kind of exist a little bit more. Well, yeah, and I one thing I've I've really you know I took a break from releasing music for I, my last record I released about four years ago, and then I started getting hired pretty regularly for DJing, and so mm-hmm. that sort of became my creative outlet and it's different from singing and writing music but anyway so this year i wanted to start releasing music again so uh, this will be my second song coming out um this week and one thing i've been trying to be more adamant about doing is well first of all i used to just release records and now i'm you know whatever i'm just going to release a song Mm -hmm. but i'm trying to just not overthink Mm -hmm. and because a friend of mine said you know a song is never done yeah you can always find something wrong with it mm-hmm. um or something that could be better so and, and and that's really hard as an artist because we're obviously as this is always said we're our own worst critic right how do you get to, how have you gotten better at just letting it go i think 
I've definitely instituted like arbitrary deadlines. That's a good idea. Before, yes, where I'll just I'll be like, this is done. There are no detail based corrections that I need to make, and at a certain point, I mean, like that's that's not an e- like. That's not really like a very applicable, you know, advice based kind no, of. No, I think it's really important. Actually, I think mm-hmm. deadlines, uh, because if you don't do that, you're going to be meandering around for like two years on something. I have a friend who who has an EP um, that I did some vocals for, and it's an amazing it's an amazing piece of work. <laughs> and one of the songs I've played it live like five six times, and it's always everybody's favorite song. Yeah, and he's still like it's been two years now, and he continues to go back to it, and he'll send me a text and be like, "Yo, like I think I've figured out how I want this to be," and I just always remind him like this is how you want it to be is different based on like your mood and every day, you yeah. Know? So like it has you like if you're going to finish it, you have to set what the rules are for what you're trying to accomplish, and not let yourself change those. Yeah. Um, because to me, the song is not, it isn't who I am now. It's who I was when I wrote the song. Right. Um, and beyond that, I, I think the other thing that's really helped me is performing, honestly, because being able to perform the song gives me an opportunity to change it. So like, even totally. if I put out the song tomorrow, I can, like, I'm, I'm currently planning a show um, on June 6th and I'm doing all the songs differently. And I've been like, my fiance was like, why don't you just play them like they're good yeah they're good the way they were and and to me especially because it's i mean it's because it's like an asian american thing and i really want to show up for that so i want it to be special right but i also um i have so much respect for like the artists that i've seen perform live where the song sounds entirely different and it feels oh yeah totally you know and it gives it new life and you realize that you're listening to this song that you've heard so many times before i agree with you you know, sometimes so, I got annoyed. I found what because I used to go to concerts all the time where if it sounded exactly like the record, yeah. that really bummed me out. Right, and you know what's funny is some people love but some that. people love that. That's like I what know. they want. Yes, you know? it's, it's confusing to me. But I was one of those people that loved it when um, a band or like Pearl Jam was really known for just like totally changing up and rocking and jamming out and right. not restricting it. But I think now because so many. Artists are playing with pre-recorded tracks. It's harder. Yeah. It's harder to improvise, and, and I think it's uh, ultimately it's important given the 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 current climate of music to make those experiences special because right. they're so commonplace now. Like you can hear that song over and over again as many times as you want for free. Yeah. So like having a show, I think I think it's important to me to attract the kind of people who appreciate that yeah um, well when you play a show live are you do you have a band going on or is it just you it's it's just me so far wow. um yeah i uh i used to have a guy that would run the tracks on ableton okay and then i got this hardware sampler called an octatrack that i've been like really geeking out about <laughs> right. for the last like year and i finally gotten it to a point where i can basically create the structure within this machine and then i can extend certain sections like i can play you can i I can basically program it so that there's a a, like a vamping section right where i can solo or i can program little effects into it where i can control it with a fader or something like that that's cool yeah so it's i mean currently it's a one-man band situation but i've been working with more and more people and seeing the benefits of having a band you know sure um so it's definitely like calling to me 
Oh, actually, one question before I talk about the show and then how we met. Sure. So, um, but tell me also about when did music you realized, huh? This is something that I'm I'm going to really probably be doing more than just like an hour a day kind of a thing. When do when was it even a sort of a conscious day where you remember or just over time it just you found yourself spending more and more time doing it it was definitely an evolution um honestly it felt like the thing that i knew how to do the best it wasn't even it wasn't even like obviously it probably had to do with the fact that it was a passion of mine but i was also thinking practically of like this is easier for me than doing most things yeah um that being said i don't think jobs are really like a thing that people are good at when they (laughs) Right. When they get out of college. So that might have just been like me justifying my choices. Sure. But um, I came out here originally to be a composer and producer. So I was very much like behind the scenes in my own head. Right. I I remember telling uh, my parents like, oh, it'll be fine because I can produce for other people and then they can go do the hard work of touring. (laughs) Right. And I can just, you know, sit back and work with a bunch of people and just get checks in the mail. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a good deal. (laughs) Right. Which sounds great, you know? yeah. Um, that, Sign you know, me up. Somebody, somebody out there is 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 doing great with that. But um, yeah, but yeah, like over the over over like the course of I'd say one to two years, um, I was getting a lot of help from my parents. Um, I wasn't making a lot of money. I was co- coordinating voiceover sessions. And this was in college. No, this or, was after. College. This was after college. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when I was in college, I didn't really, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> when I was in college, I didn't really um, write a ton of music except for um, my classmates who were film majors. Okay. So they were the ones who really pushed me to finish music. I hadn't finished a song up until like sophomore year. Right. And they asked me to do the soundtrack for their movie. So I took it upon myself since it was like a indie romance thing. I was like, <laughs> okay. I should do something like Garden State where every song is by a different band and then I'm just going to be all the bands. Okay. That's kind of cool. So I made like a Simon and Garfunkel track. I made like a Amy Winehouse track with a friend of mine. Uh And uh, it was kind of like this early experiment into like, can I sound like certain people, which has always been, I think the basis of like my, the foundation of like how I learned music. Cause like when you learn classical music, there is a way that you can play it, that you can listen to. Right. Um, so I'm kind of jumping around here, but like back in high school, I was interested in playing music. Uh, I taught myself guitar. Um, I was in a band, but I was very anal about playing covers exactly like they sounded on the record. <laughs> okay, interesting. So like I learned Under the Bridge exactly like John Frusciante plays. Right. Where it's got all the little like hammers, uh-huh. all those little details. I like had it down like from start to finish. Um, and that was how I preferred to play because I felt like you're recreating this thing. Like, yeah. how can you change? <laughs> right. Um, and then I think from there, like in college, I started like exploring, okay, well, what if I write something in the style of this person? So with the style, Simon and Garfunkel, I was like, well, that's going to be an acoustic guitar. It's going to be two people harmonizing. <laughs> right. The song is pretty short and the lyrics have some kind of like wordplay kind of thing going right. on. So I wrote the song "Stubborn Girl," and like there, it was my my mom still loves that song. Right. It's like uh, the the whole thing is like I'm in love with this stubborn girl, and then at the very end, it's because it's like because she's in love with somebody else. Right. 
I've fallen in love with a stubborn girl. The love we have is always in a world. But no matter how hard you try, you can't make me leave her side. Cause I've fallen in love with a stubborn girl. One of these days she's gonna be my wife. So I can see her for the rest of my life. But until that fateful day, I'm gonna charm her heart away. Cause one of these days that girl's gonna be my wife. When she walks, I don't know how to move. I'm all tied up, oh. And when she talks, I've forgotten how to speak. I've lost my voice, oh. She turns her eyes and I've completely lost my mind. This girl's gonna force me off the rails. She's convinced she loves someone else. Then I'll do anything I can because I'm a stubborn man. And I've fallen in love with a stubborn girl Yes I did Cause I've fallen in love with a stubborn girl Yes I did Cause I've fallen in love with a stubborn girl From there, um, I knew that I liked sort of creating songs that fit to picture Okay. And so that was kind of where I came from when I was moving to LA. Um, and I think over time, I kind of got frustrated with this idea that I had to wait for somebody else to create a project. Sure. Um, and especially something that I didn't necessarily know. I, like, I wanted to put myself more into it because every time I wrote songs for commercials and uh, films and things like that, it was like a song that was about my life. Right. But like in the in the context of this thing that I got hired to do. Right. And uh, the work wasn't easy. So I at, at a certain point I was I, I just decided that it would make more sense for me to have some sort of project at least on the side that I could call like my own thing that yeah. I could work on. And um, around the same time, my two friends who are um, film people they asked me if I would help them run a Kickstarter to make a music video. Because they needed something for the reel, and uh, they were like, "You could use the music video for your own thing." Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up I, like I had this conversation with them where I said, "You know, there's no market for kickstarting music videos. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a free product. Like yeah. the moment you put it out, everybody has it. So why don't I just make an EP of music and then?" We'll use that as the reward, and then like I'll have all these live performances and right. stuff as the rewards. So I put all this work into it, and I ended up like doing way more than I should have. Done. Of course, I get the sense that you—that's uh, <laughs> probably a pattern with you. Yeah, it's like I—I I, I was like I was like forcing myself to like do this thing, and I hadn't mentally accepted what I was actually doing. Right. You know, like I hadn't accepted that this was something that I could do, uh -huh. and yet I was putting so much effort into these things. Um, and I think what really clicked, if we're sort of like chronicling the the development of that was 
um, kind of thinking back to my family and my cultural background and the fact that I had never seen Asian American artists growing up. Right. And I feel like that really was a big part of why I never saw myself as somebody who could be like the mm. performer. So I, I had this, um, I went on this retreat with a friend of mine and we went to Joshua Tree and we did acid and, yeah. um, and we just, and it was one of the first times I'd been in a room with like just Asian people, like of different cultures, but uh -huh. most of his friends are Asian and most of mine are white just from like how we grew up. He grew up in LA. Right. And, um, and I had like a really interesting weekend where I just talked to them a ton about like, why is it that we don't see these things, even though I know that there are people talented enough to do them? And like, is it built into how we grow up? Is it built into how we like, don't want to share a ton because our parents don't want to share right. a ton? Yeah. Um, it's probably, we'll go continue. I, well, it's, it, it is, it feels to me like a combination yeah, of all those things. Yeah, I was going to say that. Because yeah. like my parents grew up in a, in a country where they couldn't speak their mind. Like my mom wrote a diary she tells me, and she had to burn it because she got too afraid that people would like find it. Wow. Um, and they just, they learned to distrust each other. Like yeah. they would, people would regularly turn in their neighbors. It was kind of like a McCarthyism type thing where if you, if you called somebody else out, it made you feel safe. So like hmm. people were very distrusting of like people within their own town and the government really encouraged that. Um, like what would they call them out for? Like gossipy things like this person was um, saying things against the government. Oh, okay. This person was adulterous or this person like I overheard them saying that like the that there's not enough food or something like yeah. my grandpa, for example, he used to work in a um, I think like a, a he was a mechanic and he wrote this graffiti on the wall uh, that said uh, in Chinese, it said too too hungry to um so so the phrase is uh -huh. and it means um we don't have enough food to be full but we have just enough that we can't starve okay and he got in really big trouble for that wow <laughs> um he got fired and he couldn't get a job and my mom's brother couldn't go to college for like a couple years um so they really remembered that stuff and i think that really deter that really made my parents afraid of the idea of sharing any information. Right. Like once they came to the States, I think since that conversation I had in Joshua tree, where I talked to them for, for a long time about this, this like silence that has happened for this whole generation and like a cultural, like destruction, like, yeah, you know, China is still recovering from that. And that's why culturally they look to the West and they have a lot of things that look like the West. Um, there isn't really like a modern Chinese style of music anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's been difficult even over here because then you, you don't really have something that you can say is like your own. And then when you make music that sounds American, it's like you're sort of doing the American thing. Huh. There um, was, I feel like there was an Asian band that put out a record the last was it bts or something oh yeah okay. there's south korean k-pop band okay yeah. i mean they they're are they huge and oh, they in are asia? really big and yeah. i guess this i feel I, i'm trying to think of another asian band that put out a record that really sort of broke in america and i can't think of any no 
But that one, I guess you could say, did get a little success here. And before that, um, you could say that there's this electronic producer named Zhu, Z-H-U, who... Um, Z-H-U? Put, yeah. That's right. I, I freaking love them. I yeah. love him. He and I saw, him at the, at the, I saw him at the shrine. Yeah, yeah. Um, like maybe, I think maybe, I saw him then, too. Maybe a year ago, or not even that long. I went to... That's right. I thought he was Asian. Yeah. But, but he hides like, his face. He does. And that's kind of like part of his whole thing. There is, is such a mystery to him. Yeah. And, but do you think that's done because of his background? I think so. I think so. You think, wow, that's amazing. And and that was that was the things that I started to look at at that point was like, there's so much, there's so little visibility for artists that are of this particular because nobody wants to rock the boat and everyone's afraid that like that's that going to be so the thing. Interesting. And I so, love him. Yeah, he's he's great. <laughs> no, but I do find that interesting. It's so funny. I, I I was talking to somebody about this where, and again, it's it's spelled Z H U. His big song, I guess, was was faded, right. um, but he just put out a record like in the last year that was also really good. Um, but I've, but he's I've, one of the few artists. Sorry that that yeah. I found that there was still mystery to him, mm-hmm. and you know, even the outfit he wears on stage, you really can't even see him, right. And I remember walking out on the last song and looking up at the stage, and I was like, "God, I think he might actually be Asian." <laughs> and but now you're te- so maybe his mystery that he creates is because of his background, right? And I think it's—I mean, I think it's twofold. Yeah, um, you can be a producer who doesn't really want to like, and it, and it just fits right into sort of the. Um, the mo of electronic producers of that era that like we're always wearing masks and kind of right. like adopting certain personas, but I do think that it played a role in how he chose to present himself. Like you know whether or not that was exactly correct, I think that became a big part of why I wanted to do those to do music as a as as an as the artist, and it took mm. me a really long time to call myself an artist. Yeah, um, but this idea that like. How do I want to share my story and the story of like my family and how do I want to present myself and and also just using this as like a device for pushing myself in directions that make me uncomfortable. Right. Um, so that's kind of been the, the guiding principle for me is like, what am I avoiding hmm. <laughs> and how can I focus on that thing and figure out why I'm avoiding it? Like last year, uh, my fiance uh, convinced me to start performing for the first time after like five years of making music. Right. And it was because I had had stage fright from like playing competitions back in like high school Hmm. where I would perform a piece that I'd prepared for a whole year and they would give me a score. Right. So like the idea of performance was like not great for me. Yeah, of course. But... I remember, uh, I remember watching um, the DVD that I had bought, like the only live DVD I've ever bought of like Red Hot Chili Peppers live at, um, what is it, in Scotland somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just like, I think it, had cl- it clicked suddenly that like this thing that I've been in love with was the fact that they're on stage and they're not like restricted to certain things and they're right. just making it up as they go and yeah. like having a good time and like just to see that and like resonate with it. I don't think I had really made the connection of like that's something I wanted to do. 
Well, it's, I remember, I, you know, I met you at uh, Ray and Eric's party. What was it? Maybe like four months ago, three months ago. Really? Wow. Um, yeah, it was a while ago. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Feels like a month ago to me. I know. But I remember you talking about this party uh, or or this this event, uh, like an Asian an Asian American musical event with dancers and music. And is this this is the event you're talking about? It's, yes. It's on June sixth. Mm-hmm. So tell you tell me about it and and where's it at and what's what's Behind, I mean, you told me about it then, but sure. I want to hear it again. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's like, I keep zooming out in my head because, like, um, sort of going from that story about, like, making my first music out in L.A. and then sort of finding purpose from the lyrics and trying to figure out what I want to talk about, I think that's really evolved in the sense of expanding beyond just music. Um, right. I last year when I was when I started performing, I just I added I added myself to like the most generic groups on Facebook for gigs. So they would have things like, you know, there's a farmer's market on Sunday morning in Glendale. And yeah, like we need a guitarist to play. And so I would say yes. I said yes to like maybe 10 shows. Okay, like in the first like six, seven months. Um, And then within that, I think that got the attention of this guy Moonroom. Um he goes by Moonroom and he put together this series of like 12 shows um all by himself with the help I mean with the help of like individual curators. Okay. But it was his idea to begin with and um he reached out to me on Instagram and I really enjoyed the design of the posters. I felt like they were they were they were they were like um Images from old Asian movies, like actual films from China or Shanghai and stuff. Okay. And then he would have, like, you know, the hi-hat at 9 p.m. with, like, these artists. Right. And it was, like, such a mindfuck for me because I'd never seen, like, those things combined, you know? Yeah. I was just like, wow, there's actually a person who's curating Asian-American artists, and this is perfect for me. So, right. So I ended up playing a show at the Moroccan Lounge um, with this band, Polotropica. Okay. They're kind of like a dreamy synth-pop band. And it was the first time I really felt like somebody had like curated me um, with some intention. Hmm. And so I felt really inspired by that. And I learned, I, I basically went to like six or seven of the Moon Room shows okay. after that. Uh, basically all over that Echo Park downtown mm-hmm. area primarily. Yeah. And, um, and what was amazing about it was every show had like a different genre. So like you'd see a rock band fronted by like an Indian woman. And then, like, that whole night would be rock. Yeah. And then there was, like, another band that was kind of, like, Jay Dilla-style hip-hop beats. And they were all Asian people. Then there was another one that was, like, a punk night. Right. And each one had been... He basically, like, assigned a person who was part of that community to put together a lineup. And he would help them as well. Okay. And so it was the first time I, I thought about the idea of, like, doing all this stuff yourself. Because up until that point, I was like, oh, I gotta, like play enough that I meet a booker or like <laughs> right. get a venue interested in me and then email a bunch of venues and have them like put me in their like yeah. list of contacts. Well, and I remember you sort of talked about this, I don't want to say it's just this sexual aspect to it, but you did say that, you know, Asians were supposed to behave in a particular way mm-hmm. and you wanted to, I just remember, for whatever reason, just you talking about that aspect of the show. So yeah. how is everything you're talking... Like, when did... So 
you got to a point talking to these people that you felt confident to put this show together and how did it what's the theme of the show or what are you yeah. trying to create so i met uh i met this singer named kalia um who's an r&b singer uh back in last year's apam mm-hmm. asian pacific american heritage month when i saw her perform it was this very sexual thing like she moves her body and yet she has like a, a midi controller on stage that she also operates mm-hmm. so i was just impressed on the grounds that somebody could use those things and still be a performer right um so we we kept in touch for the last year and um and so when apam rolled around again this year i had been in close contact with moonroom for some time and he had been sort of sharing his thoughts for that for this year's um, programming okay um the the key to playing a show is just knowing a lot of people or like hitting up a lot of people and having the having something that's attractive enough for them to join and and do that sure and and also i i wouldn't discount the fact that i've had a lot of time to reach out to people and make sure that this thing is going to actually happen and help them feel like it's a real thing right but um early on when we were talking about the idea it was me and Kalia and um and she suggested that we really go all out because the venue is um it's called Chewing Foil mm-hmm. it's in like the Pico Union area and um and it's a pretty large space um she suggested right off the bat that we have poles because she's a exotic dancer as well and she wanted to get some burlesque performers mm-hmm. in the space and so I don't know what it was, but it, pretty much immediately after that, I suggested that we make the whole night about sexuality. And like, it's really been only after the fact that I've thought about like why it was that I was so interested in that. And I think that goes back to the this, this thing that scares me. You know, it's mm. like, I don't really explore that all that much in my performance, but I also want that to be a more comfortable thing uh, for me to explore on stage and just like in in regular life. Yeah. Um, I remember reading a, um, what is it? James, uh, who is the black writer from the 60s? James... Oh, I know who you're talking about. Car- James Baldwin. Yes. Yeah, I read this, uh, I read James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. Okay. And he talks about sensuality of black people and how there's this, acceptance of their identity that like they're able to exude um and it was something that was really um inspiring to me just like this idea of being comfortable with yourself feeling yourself right which i i hear in the language of like black friends that i have like the idea of feeling yourself is very much a real thing yeah um and it's not something that i've ever tapped into you Mm. know for myself like even my brother will tell me he's like are there ever days that you like just feel like you're on with every conversation you have with people and you just like you could just charm the pants off anyone (laughs) and i'm like no yeah yeah (laughs) um so i think um i think that was really the motivation for me and also just not seeing very much uh sexual liberation from the asian american community right like it's obviously if you're not even allowed to hold hands in college like the idea of expressing yourself sexually on stage is just like not even a consideration. Yeah. So I wanted to create an opportunity knowing that from the, from the sort of the in-depth investigation that I've made into the, at least the local scene around LA, that there isn't a ton of that going on. Right. Um, But also recognizing the fact that that's, 
a difficult thing to just do out of nowhere, you mm-hmm. know? So I think for me, it's more important that, that that space be available. And if people choose to use it that way, that they can. Um, so is it going to be like bands, dancing, artists? Is it just one night? Is it a weekend? or It's just one night. It's a Thursday night, uh, June 6th from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. Okay. Uh, we have a lineup of four artists. Um, each one has like a half hour set. And then around midnight, we're going to switch it over to DJs. And okay. we have like lasers and fog and... Um, they're going to play, I think we've got, so we've got Sasha Kay and Harriet Brown and they're both like awesome DJs with like, they're, they're probably the biggest names on the, on the lineup right now. The, aside from that, so like the, the painter that I worked with for the show in February, I asked him if he would help curate an entire like art portion of the night. Yeah. So he helped me reach out to a ton of other, um, and I don't think he's ever done this before either, but it, it's been really empowering to just give people the opportunity. Yeah, sure. So I told him like, reach out to people, uh, for this event and ask them if they'd be down to share some, some artwork. And we definitely chose artists that explore sexuality as a theme in their work. Yeah. So we have like, eight artists total who will be putting their art on display and also for sale if anybody wants to buy them. And then besides that, there are certain artists who are like me and Kalia. I think both of us are going to have dancers. Um, and you're one of, you're going to be one of the artists that performs. Yeah. 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 So, so for my part, I have been reproducing my tracks, um, knowing that I never, that sexuality was not a thought (laughs) that went into the production. Right. But I, I do have certain references that I know are like, this is a very sexual sound and I want to like explore that. So I've been listening to a lot of FK twigs. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just sort of trying to deconstruct what it is about the rhythms and the, and the chord progressions that can communicate that sort of thing. Clearly you're still, and I'm sure you're not alone struggling with the expectations and the history of how, um, you know, you should be. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think events like this and, and just branching off and taking a risk and experimenting, I, I don't know, I just think it's important to do. Yeah. Because it'll just open the floodgates a little bit more and people will feel more comfortable to be themselves and not worry about what their parents think or what... Um, their ancestors will think or how you know the expectations are for how one should behave as an asian american or you know as, as a as a african-american or as a caucasian or it just doesn't matter it's just right. um i uh, yeah i i've been thinking about that a lot like this idea that art should be good for you to pursue yeah like we, we kind of talked about mystery a little bit and um, I think that's one of the, to me, it's one of the more dangerous sides of music is like people feel like they have to hide themselves. And the more they do that, I think the more stakes there are behind what they present. Hmm. And I don't think that's, I think it's more important to use music as a way to learn about yourself than to like, like I don't know it's it's such a even as I'm saying it I'm just thinking of all the ways you could experience yeah you know music but I guess the only way I can speak is from my own experience which is I've spent my whole life like listening to music studying it examining it you know trying to figure out how it works 
And to me, the conclusion is like that it's a vehicle for me to experience like life. Yeah. And it should be a device by which I learn about myself and then apply those things to the life part. Yeah. Um, even if I play a show that's like amazing, that affects my confidence. And I think that's the thing that I would take from that. Sure. Um, as opposed to like, I'm great because I played this show, you know? Um, you talked about music nowadays or current music. I forgot exactly. Well, I can, I'll <laughs> say exactly. No, but I, I didn't know if you meant it in a negative way. Um, you compared music today, which is fine if you did, because that's how I interpreted it. Interpreted it. Uh, resem- music today resembling sirens and alarms. Mm. What, mm. What, did you, what did you mean by that? There was a there was a show I went to early like three years ago. I think it was Hard Day of the Dead. I remember I was like waiting outside of one of the like in between shows. Yeah. And I think there was somebody playing just like EDM, you know? And okay. it just sounded like like a like a an alarm when you wake up, you know? Hmm. Just like these crazy um like digital tones. Yeah. Um that being said, I listened to a ton of techno. <laughs> I was actually listening to to some of that on the way over here. Okay. Um, and I think as a listener, I've definitely picked up a taste in kind of all music. I was just, I was wondering when I read your description, you know, the music is compressed so much now. And I remember reading, you know, one of Metallica's records was actually... Sound. Or the loudness war, right? Yeah, it was actually distorted because it was they, the mastering engineer just had to make it so loud. Mm-hmm. And I even think of like, you know, the trailers in a movie where the, the music is just enhanced and, and it plays so fucking loud now. Uh, and even a lot of the pop music now, it, it does feel like an alarm. Mm-hmm. And not in a good way, in my in my mind. Right. And um, well, I think also in the context of like, I definitely had like a uh, some musings about that at the time because I remember thinking that these alarms are almost like the thing that we do when we're not at a concert is something that we want to separate ourselves so much from when we right. go to the show that it's like we need this thing to just like wake us up. We're just trying to like force feelings into our bodies with with this really loud, intense music, right? Well, that's but that's the thing. Music is uh, there's there's it, it should have space and there is subtlety <laughs> and it needs to breathe. Sure. We over the last three four years we have gotten into a space now where everything needs to be loud and fast. Mm-hmm. I even think of like. You know, an Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, like film score or something, where it it just it slowly evolves, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, everything now is just. I mean, I I know the reason, but everything now just has to slam you over the head and be quick and get to the chorus in like mm-hmm. twenty five seconds, and the second chorus needs to be basically done within a minute and a half. And right. I, I don't know. There's just such. It it should slowly. There should sort of be like a flirtatiousness to the music and it should sort of take its time. At least, you know, I remember, you know, the last song on the Soundgarden record, Super Unknown, like Suicide, it's like seven minutes long. And and I and I think it's really cool. And Led Zeppelin obviously had long. I I don't know. I just think there's something really 
cool about a song taking its time. Yeah. As opposed to it having to be slamming its head or you know, sl- you know just slamming you in the face. Right. I, I don't know. So just when I read that, I, 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 I agreed with you, but I also was curious, you know, if you were, if you're frustrated with, with the trends in, in sort of music or are you embracing them or sort of how are you finding your way in, in sort of the music landscape now? Yeah, that's a good question. I um, I'm gonna rewind real quick to "Melt Away" because mm-hmm. that's it's, it has more views than any other song, and largely that's because I mean, ninety percent of that is because it got added to Fresh Finds and Summer Heat, which was like a huge summer playlist last year. Okay. So after that, I just got this huge jump in views. Okay. And then I my my brother's a data analyst for healthcare. Okay. Um, and he asked me to send him the spreadsheets that Spotify gives you. We just talked about like what these what these numbers might mean and how I could utilize them because okay. that's kind of his expertise. Okay. And he basically was like, "Well, you have a lot of people who have listened to the song, but you haven't gained any subscribers." Interesting. Like, no, like you've you've gained like maybe five out of like two hundred thousand listens. Okay. So that means that the playlist that you were added to is not occupied by people who are actively figuring out who and that's honestly that's a that's a bigger problem with how spotify uses music but the average person who's listening to a summer playlist is probably putting it on a party or in a store or in a car and they're not going to go look for that artist when they hear the song right there's a good chance that nobody's even listening to it when it's playing i think at that point last year i started thinking about how do i reach people who are more active like what is an active listen and how can i adjust to that okay i started reading about branding and like all this other stuff that's kind of obnoxious but the conclusion was that these attempts to be appealing are actually against me Hmm. because um the more i sound like something that somebody else already listens to the more likely it's just going to be added to a playlist of stuff that they already listen to and it's it's not an active listen it's just it's meant to fit a mood I, I really enjoy focusing on shows. Yeah. Because um, now I'm kind of, I'll have a song that I wrote four years ago, and I, like today, I was deconstructing it and adding new chords and bass lines and rhythms to it and just kind of making it new to me. And I think that's kind of where I'm going with it is like, I, I definitely have like a, an accessibility streak. Like mm-hmm. it's not, I'm never going to get rid of that, I think. But, um, I I try to challenge myself by listening to, you know, more more eclectic styles of music right. that are a bit more experimental. And often I find that those artists have you know like millions of views on Spotify. Yeah. Um. So it's kind of it's it's kind of a weird thing of like nowadays I think you can be very popular in your own way within these pockets. Yeah. I remember. Uh, meeting you at at, um, at that birthday party, and I uh, was telling you about the podcast. I just I remember, you know, I really connected with you, and we talked for quite a while at the party yeah. when we met, and it was cool. And and it's just we talked about music and DJing, and just and to me, that's sort of how you get to know somebody. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you you, t- you you meet somebody somewhere at a bar, a restaurant, wherever, and you 
for whatever reason, you just start talking. And I've, I've been listening to this podcast, Recode Decode, and um, this guest was talking about human downgrading hmm. or and also time well spent. You know, Instagram is downgrading our culture hmm. and we're not spending our time as well as we used to. And you talked earlier about discipline, and I, I really think that is more important now than ever before because yeah. if you're not careful you're not going to be spending your time well uh, uh, you're going to be staring at stupid instagram stories for three hours or staring at random youtube videos for two hours so um and you seem to connect with what i was talking about you know, i don't even know how to ask this but you know what, what do you think about what i <laughs> what do you think about what i'm saying and what do you think about social media? And it's tough because here's the conundrum that I run into. Mm-hmm. I think as a whole, it, there is a huge downgrading going on in our culture. I, I, I think it's creating more, ang- you know, teenage suicide in girls is higher than ever. There's more bullying in teenage boys. Um, and this is a scary statistic that I read. 25% people are spending, on average, Americans... 20 to 25 percent of their life in an in a, in a day in the artificial world mm. as opposed to the real world and the artificial world could be you know instagram facebook youtube because let's face it these worlds are artificial yeah they're not real but people are make are spending more time in those worlds every day and they're and what's so fucked up is that you're still thinking about that world when you leave it. Mm-hmm. So if you spend an hour on Instagram, your mind is still affected by that hour and you're still thinking about it further than, you know, longer than an hour. So here's my point. What's, but what's tough for an artist is kind of need it. Yeah. These tools are really important. You know, I have a song that's coming out or, you know, a podcast comes out. I'm obviously going to promote it on Instagram, Facebook. And, and so these are really powerful tools for artists to get the word out. But I also think these, these tools are fucking up the, 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 the structure of our, our society. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what's true anymore. We don't know what's false and people can't agree on things yeah. and it's ruining the fabric of our society. <laughs> You know, what's your relationship with social media? What do you like, not like about it? What frustrates you? And then obviously you're going to be using it to promote your your show. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear about your relationship with social media. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. Um, I have never been really good at using social media. Um, I've tried to use Twitter so much and i'm just it's not really my platform it's like i don't really think about sharing my thoughts like that right um instagram is a little bit easier for me but i definitely it started to make more sense for me when i thought of it less as like me sharing everything and more of me sharing things that i needed the artist to share you know as far as like this is a show I'm playing, this is a new thing I made, this is you know, and to sort of curate that a little bit more, right? Because then that becomes connected to something I already do instead of an additional thing that I have to think about. It's like you know, every time I make a, a something interesting, I'll put it up, um, which doesn't always happen still. But then there's also like every time I go to a show, I try to record a video of that show, knowing that it's important to the artists who are performing. 
like as much as all of us hate you know instagram mm -hmm. it's important that we share a video of somebody else performing and that other people see that person performing and it makes them more real so i think you well, know as you were talking about yeah social media i think the thing that i thought about the most was this idea that like it's it's a network of people who are all doing very different things and they a lot of them for sure are like just observing and like consuming you yeah. know um and yet there are things that i've found on instagram that i haven't found elsewhere for example um there was a there's a party that i found out about um that happens every few months and the only way they promote that i know of is they make a they do an instagram post and then they tell people to message them for the address because i mean a lot of stuff in la is pretty underground so yeah. they say venmo us you know five bucks for entry so once I found out that that sort of thing was happening, I started to look into how can I use this in a way to further the the real life experience. You right. Know? So like, for example, I follow a ton of people, but I've learned, I've started using the post notifications. So every time certain people post something, it'll give me a push notification. Like, for example, if you find an event page that always posts about new shows going on okay and you can get post notifications so that you get a push thing and you can click on it and it'll tell it'll show you what they said um and so i've been using that as a way to connect to it without like having to search it myself right um and i find that helps a lot but really just connecting the platform to things that i'm doing in real life i think is is my strategy towards that um i also i feel like you don't post a lot i don't and i, yeah. I wish i did that's the well, other thing why like, so i mean because earlier you said everybody hates instagram and <laughs> and you don't post so I, I mean i don't know i feel like you're scratching the surface here as to what's but i mean what's really going on in the sense that i mean are you why are you not posting and do you actually hate it or i post infrequently because i do the three image thing oftentimes okay and when i add one image it throws everything off oh, so often right. i have to think of my posts in threes and like <laughs> curate them much more than I, than I kind of wish i had to right um so i think that definitely plays into it i don't hate the platform itself because i do feel like you can approach it a certain way right i try to just take a step back and and choose the the environment because i feel like nowadays because we have so much access if you don't curate it you can be just like a wash in um all kinds of things that you don't actually like like ads for example there's just right. so many different ads that just come your way whether you like them or not yeah i feel like the people that are curating and trying to look a certain thing and quote unquote be a certain brand or something mm -hmm. and i even talked about this on a podcast earlier where like everybody feels like they have to be a fucking brand now and it's yeah. to me that's so annoying like yeah. because it's turning a human being into a like this sort of inanimate object. Like I can yeah. see why Volkswagen's a brand. You know, you sort of understand what they are. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think there's this this cautiousness about being a brand or having to be a certain thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like is a is a crutch. And yeah. I don't know. There's there is something about peeking into how an how an artist is. I feel like people like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, what's and back to the mystery thing? I do think Instagram has ruined the mystery yeah. aspect of life. You know, everybody wants 
constant access all mm-hmm. the time. And I was thinking, my aunt told me about, she went to see Led Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden in like the mid-70s. And, and talk about a show that everybody wanted to go to. Right. And the fact that only 20,000 people were there, there weren't cell phones, and all mm-hmm. that exists of that show are stories. Right, right. And I think there's something really cool and exciting about that. And Instagram has like eliminated that. Right. So well, I think at the same time, though, there, I've I've had experiences like that, and okay. a phone can't capture the time True. that I saw Frank Ocean perform in front of my eyes, and yeah, like the energy of everybody just like kind of holding their breath, watching this person like just with an incredible voice, and he had live art like musicians on stage, and he was wearing headphones just so they could make sure that he was singing everything perfectly. Um, and just the immediacy of that, I don't think can ever be replaced. Like I definitely have a more idealistic idea of those things because I feel like as much as those do serve like to satisfy a lot of people, those wouldn't be the kinds of people that I would want to, you know, be my fans anyway, because they wouldn't go to the show. Right. (laughs) So like chances are if I like, I'm I'm never I'm never going to get those people to come. Right. And it's going to have to be people like you or people who appreciate that that live aspect to come to the show and see how it how it comes together and 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 see those in-between moments. Right. Cuz like, yeah, you can capture some of like everything is a bit curated, you know, like whether you choose to make some sort of one-off video, you're sort of communicating a level of apathy in like the posts that you make. And so it's kind of like it's it's kind of like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Sort of yeah, thing. a little bit. That's true. And and I think there was a there's a Jim Gaffigan stand up thing about that where he was like, I wish I could just wear clothes without be like being a brand anymore. He's like, if I wear boring clothes, then my like suddenly I'm like a, that's like my style now. Right. Like, I'm like a normcore guy now. Yeah. Like if I choose to wear just like a t shirt and jeans. Yeah. It's just yeah. <laughs> well, and I could, but I feel like is that part of the reason why you don't post as often or like you're worried about what it's going to convey or, you know? Yeah, I do definitely think about that more often than I would like. You know, I spend all day doing music-related, creative-related things, and I could potentially take photos and post yeah. them all the time. Sure. Um, and yet I... I tend to focus on these other things. I think the main thing, especially when it, it's like a release is around the corner, things like that, I, I want it to be more about that. And I'm worried that like if I put things in between that, that like somebody won't notice this other post that I have like sitting right at the top. <laughs> right. I don't know if that's true, but it's, <laughs> I think that's kind of where it's coming from. The people who happen to be on Instagram, the moment you post that are going to see it. Right. Um, and the people who happen to be on it like 10 minutes after, if they're lucky, they might scroll down to it. it, Yeah. So like, it's really just a numbers game. It's like the more you post, the more likely you'll show up on somebody's phone. Right. Um, it's a tough game to win though. (laughs) Yeah. And do you, and do you feel like Instagram and our culture, do you, do you think there's, it's a bad thing that's going on or you don't you're not um i don't know what's what's your take on on the effect that it's having and and are you addicted to it or do you feel 
um, the scroll factor in your mm-hmm. life? I mean, what's what's your take on it? I I try to just focus on what I can what can, what I can do with it and kind of try to think outside of the box a little bit. Yeah, like um, for some reason I thought about Yelp when you started talking about social media because I feel like Yelp has changed the way we try new food. Yeah, you know, like I've I can't remember the last time I went to a restaurant having not looked it up. Right. You know, and and yet we did just fine without it. And oftentimes we get word of mouth from somebody and then we look it up and it's three and a half stars and we try it anyway and it's fine. Right. So I feel like that sort of system by which people rank restaurants can be very detrimental to like having actual experiences with the people who are in those places. Yeah. And it also, I think it puts a lot of pressure on well, first of all, it gives people a voice that maybe they shouldn't have a voice. Mm-hmm. You know, who's, you know, it, it reminds me of the people that are posting photos of their food. It's like, you're, why do we care what you're eating? Right. And you're not the chef. Mm-hmm. And who, you know, everybody is a foodie now and thinks that they have incredible, impeccable taste with food. Right. And, you know, maybe the restaurant was just, you know, they had a shitty night and the, this person who just, thinks their opinion matters goes on to yelp and just vomits all over this restaurant and you know i just i have mixed feelings about yeah yelp and you're right i mean i look at it all the time and TripAdvisor when i'm vacationing and all this right. sort of stuff but it does uh, raise the stakes and, and i th- i think the other thing too though is like in the face of that there are there's like this like i believe that there's a movement a growing movement of people who want that real experience who want to try new things and get that information from some guy that they meet right and so for me it's like how can i how can i harness that i think what it is is like slowly shaping my own uh experience so that i don't get distracted by all the other things that it can be like it can just be tv for you <laughs> yeah you know? exactly you can just tap that top thing and then like it'll just go through everybody's stories for the last like however long but i've been using it to message random people that i've never met before and talk to them about the show that i'm doing or like ask them if they'd be down to get coffee um which oftentimes like if it's just some person like they're not like a celebrity. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. They don't get like a thousand messages a day. Yeah. Um, so I've been learning a ton about different events that are going on around the city. Um, I don't think there's a, there's a growing trend of people not being on Facebook. Right. And so there's a lot of people who are still on Instagram. And there's like I, my, my schedule this week is just booked this evening because of show. I'm actually going to something after this. Yeah. Um, it's by this group called Citizens of Culture. I found out about them in Arizona. They did a talk about masculinity, which was really interesting to me. This this idea of like all these other movements have been taking place, and like we like heterosexual men have been yeah. like this one thing that hasn't changed, right? And so, um, so then I, I talked with the guy afterwards, and he said, "Oh, like I'm on this Instagram. Like we're going to be doing a show, um, or we're going to be doing a talk back in LA because he's based out of LA." Right. So I followed him, and then. Uh, I saw the event and going to check it out. What should we play for to end the show? 
Um, like your latest release, the Magic remix, or? Yeah, I think the um, Edward Love remix is pretty nice. Edward, oh there it is, Edward Love. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Just after we'll we'll close the show, like the outro, we'll play that track. Cool. And that just came out, I guess, probably in like the last six weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Cool. So where can people check you out? So it's Z H A O on Spotify. Zao. Uh, tell me about the show. Yeah. Uh, or you know how? Where's it at? Where can people get tickets? Or how much does it cost? Or you know. And the date, etc. Yeah, so it's uh, it's on June sixth. It's at Chewing Foil, which um, I I don't think I'm allowed to say the address because they're a bit okay. low key about things. But right. you can DM me uh, on Instagram at Zao Music Z H A O Music, and um, the show's going to be uh, free before 10 p.m. and then five bucks after. So okay, cool. It's not going to hurt anybody's wallet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, super psyched about it. It's I've I've sort of like had to make this and and I think Moonroom has as well had to make this argument that we're not showcasing artists that are Asian and wouldn't otherwise be worthy of being seen you know I think yeah. there's a there's a misconception because everybody even Asian people that we've talked to to try to organize shows and stuff their first idea is like oh we're like giving people special privilege to play who hmm. otherwise wouldn't be able to earn that opportunity otherwise yeah and it really just isn't the case. I mean, these people have been working just as hard as I have. They've been painting. They've been, you know, and the only reason they're not on people's radar is that the radar is gigantic. Yeah. You know, it's like there's so many amazing things happening that you just don't notice. And like, I think any effort to spotlight particular parts of it, like we try to have a lot of community allies um, with like organizations in Echo Park and stuff to to make sure that it's not just about the Asian thing, but it's about subdividing people into digestible parts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and parts, pieces that you can actually meet somebody and like make, an, make a connection, make an impression, that sort of thing. Before I let you go, I just thought about this. What, what, what do you think about the Asian community here in L.A.? Because there's a huge Asian community in Los Angeles, and there is. And is is that part part of the reason why you chose to come out here, or was it you know, strictly just music? But what's it? What do you feel about the community out here? Um, I love the I love the fact that there's so many great restaurants. <laughs> yeah, the first yeah, thought for to sure. Me. I love Koreatown. I love eating in Koreatown. Um, I think it's always about the food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that the community hasn't influenced me directly okay but the fact that it was here gave me the ability to consider the community as i choose to subdivide it because it's not really like one group of you know it's not like everybody's super tight-knit necessarily like there's a big korean community in k-town obviously and then there's a big chinese community in alhambra um but as far as like the creative community i think what like i would say that largely asian americans have kind of isolated themselves from one another there isn't like there isn't like a collective of asian artists that are kind of building each other up in a way that i'd like to see so i think that's kind of you know the eventual um vision yeah um it's not obviously it's not going to be to me like ethnically exclusive or anything like that but i think just to like take it into more consideration than i normally would have i didn't grow up with a ton of Asian friends. And I think now that I've learned more about myself and where my personality and my choices come from, 
I can see that connection to other people way clearer than yeah. I, than I used to. Well, Kenny, really stoked that you came on the show and talked to me this week. We had talked about it for a while. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just, um, I don't know. I felt the connection and felt a lot of similarities. And when we talked at the party and then just hearing your story about your family and your parents and yeah, I just think, um, you know, there's, there's a practicality to life, but there's also, um, just a, a pursuit of following your passion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it's hard to explain why some, why you love music and, and it, but it's just, it's just who you are. Yeah. It's just there mm-hmm. and you feel more connected to whether it's God or yourself or, um, there's just that process of making music is hard to explain, but it's just sort of, for me, I'm, I just feel most connected to what I should be doing. Yeah. Purpose. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think also I'd like to add that like, it's always been important to me to encourage people, whatever it is to be creative. Yeah. Like I think people oftentimes like write themselves off as like, Oh, I'm not a creative person. Right. But I, I believe that like anything that you are passionate about, you will approach with creativity. There's, there's something about how you do that, that creativity is just like a, a, a byproduct of that, or it's like, it's, it's inseparable from something that you enjoy doing. Like, yeah. Because you're expressing yourself, you're doing something that, um, if it's like, you know, even programming or, or, you know, things that, you wouldn't nor- normally associate with that. Um, they still have some elements of creativity there. So I think yeah. like, regardless of what your like traditional job is, I think we all need some sort of outlet or some kind of thing that makes us feel in control. Definitely. I think honestly, that's what creativity is for me. Is like I can decide how this thing is going to come out, and yeah, and whatever that is for people, like I'd love to just encourage that. Cool. That's that's it's a cool way to end. Because um, yeah, that's sort of one of the goals also is to get people to stop staring at their phones and be creative and mm-hmm. pick up a guitar or something. So um, cool, Kenny. Well, again, Kenny Zhao Z H A O. You can be found on Instagram. One more time. Give me the handle one more time. That's Zhao Music. Zhao Music. Uh, also on Spotify. Z H A O. And again, the downward facing spiritual spiral. Thanks, uh, Kenny, for coming on the show. Thank you. Cool, man.
Dream. 